This is episode 126 with Ironman triathlete, physical therapist, multi-sport coach, and two-time Kona qualifier, Mr. Chris Johnson. Welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Fitzgerald, and what I do here on the pod is bring you the brightest minds in the fitness industry to help you become a better runner. Yes, you'll hear from the elite runners, but you'll also be surrounded by their support team, the sports psychologists, strength experts, coaches, and physical therapists who make it all possible. The goal is always to be giving you new ideas for elevating your running. Because as I like to say, knowledge is a competitive advantage. If you're new to the show, feel free to browse the other 125 episodes or our website, strengthrunning.com, for more details on strength training for runners, injury prevention strategies, mindset training, and how to optimize your training to always keep improving. My guest today is Mr. Chris Johnson. Chris started studying physical therapy as an undergrad while he was captain of the tennis team at the University of Delaware. He then earned his PT degree while completing an orthopedic and sports graduate fellowship before working in New York City as a physical therapist and researcher. But Chris and his wife wanted to prioritize a more active outdoor lifestyle, so they packed it up and moved to Seattle. Kind of sounds like my story with moving to Denver. But in Seattle, Chris started Zeren Physical Therapy, and in addition to being a physical therapist, Chris is a certified triathlon coach, a three-time All-American triathlete, two-time Kona qualifier, and is currently ranked 16th in his age group in the country for long-course triathlon racing. Chris is also extensively published in the medical literature and has a monthly column on Ironman. I'm excited to bring you this conversation focused on injury prevention. We're exploring a bunch of fascinating topics like stride smoothness, drills and corrective exercises, injury assessments, predicting injuries, and a lot more. And of course, if you don't want to miss any of these episodes of the pod here, make sure you hit that subscribe button in your podcast player, and this will just automatically download each episode so you have the latest and greatest as soon as it's available. Okay, it's time to learn more about injuries, why they happen, how we can prevent them, and what we can add to our training and even subtract to stay healthier. Please welcome our guest, Mr. Chris Johnson. Well, I appreciate you having me on, man. Yeah, well, I am really excited to chat with you. I've been following you on Instagram for some time now, and you're always putting out so much interesting content to help runners stay healthy. So hopefully we can have an audio version today to, to help runners avoid their next injury. Yeah, of course. We'll uh, break, break away from the mold of the silent video. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe I wanted to start with uh, talking about something that you wrote recently that I thought was really interesting. You said that running involves a great deal of rhythm, timing, and coordination. Uh, I love that. And when I think about economical running form, say watching an elite runner run a four-minute mile or just gracefully cruise down the backstretch of the track, you can definitely see that they are incredibly coordinated. Their stride is so smooth. It's just a very graceful movement. But coordination, I don't think it's something that a lot of runners really prioritize in their training. And I'd love to talk a little bit more about how runners can start working on this skill, because I think it's a skill that can be built and one that can be very beneficial for not just their performance, but also for preventing injuries. Yeah, of course. Um, you know, I, I think the person who is perhaps spearheading this, uh, obviously not, not by themselves, but, um, is John Keeley. And, you know, I, uh, I recently read a paper of his from 2019 in sports medicine. That's, uh, I believe it's open access. I may be mistaken, but, um, nonetheless, he, he talks a lot about smoothness and this is something that I think really encapsulates the combination of rhythm timing and coordination you know when you see gifted runners and really any athlete um you don't even really need to have much experience or any with the sport but you know you you look at someone like a roger Federer or you know perhaps a turnish Baba, and you just say that looks right and i know nothing and it's and when i think when people say that what they're really su suggesting su suggesting is it looks fluid and smooth um 
and, and that's something that I, I do feel falls by the wayside because it's something that a lot of athletes and runners in particular don't have the patience to explore. Um, and I, I, I'm not suggesting this to the exclusion of other aspects like, you know, developing strength and, you know, just a simple act of running because repeated exposures um, is essentially going to foster smoothness. And this is something that um, I think there's some research that lends credence to that. So, yeah, I, I, that's sort of where that statement comes from in terms of, you know, running is a lot about rhythm, timing, and coordination. Um, so does that answer your question? Well, yeah, I think it, it, I think it starts to, I think, uh, the smoothness and the, uh, the, the rhythm of running is definitely something that when we see it, we almost instinctively know that this is a really good runner and that they have good form. And, and, and I think you're right that a lot of runners, you know, we're focused on mileage. We're focused on our workouts, our long run. And, and those things, you know, are certainly helpful. And one of the things that, you know, I've, uh, been thinking about a lot recently is the fact that just going through a well-structured training program is one of the best ways to improve your running form and to be a more smooth runner. Because if you are, you know, running a lot and you're running fast occasionally and you're lifting weights and you're doing running drills, you know, these are all great training uh, methods or, or tactics that are over time going to improve your form. Um, but I was just wondering, you know, like if you started working with someone, are there specific things that you might have this athlete do to start uh, building that coordination and, and to foster a smoother stride? I think it really boils down to consistency of training. So making sure that someone isn't falling into a state of fatigue or injury. Um, and, and I think outside of that, I have people, you know, especially the athletes that, that I'm coaching, um, I dose them with a ton of just these simple drills, like marching drills, step ups, uh, toe taps, things that, you know, I may get them to explore drills that somewhat replicate or resemble the performance demands of running, but I'll have them do them in a very slow rhythmic manner. Sometimes I'll have them do them to music or to a metronome. Sometimes I'll speed them up, slow them down. So they really just start to work across that spectrum. And, and I think that when they go to, to race, for example, that they start to really figure out where their sweet spot is. Um, so that's, that's sort of the motivation behind a lot of the drills that I put out. And I hope that's a message that gets conveyed to uh, the viewer, to the online community is, you know, we're trying to challenge people along the lines of the rhythm, timing, coordination piece. And I have a background with music too, and I think that ties into it a lot. Um, and I think that's also why endurance athletes are always training to music because of the rhythmicity of it. And it helps to probably uh, almost put them on autopilot. You know, uh, one of the things about a lot of these drills, uh, especially the drills that you put out on your Instagram account, is the fact that a lot of them are done really slow. And, and it's almost surprising as someone, you know, I have a track background. I ran track in college and we never did any of our drills very slowly. These were all, you know, fairly quick. Uh, they certainly had rhythm to it, uh, but they could almost be qual qualified as explosive. And what is the, the mechanism that we're working on when you have runners do some of these drills so slowly? Is it simply control, fostering more control over those really small movements? Yeah, it's, it's a lot of postural con control and just really understanding joint positions. Uh, and again, with someone who, who has a lot more reps under their belt, I do think that there is a case for, you know, if I'm working with something, someone like you, I'm definitely going to start to incorporate a lot of just some classic stuff like A skips, B skips, C skips. Um, that's sort of, you know, the other end of the spectrum with a lot of uh, recreational distance runners. I don't think they've ever taken the time to just practice some of these slow coordinated movements um, that really, you know, also challenge the reciprocity. It's always so funny when you give someone a marching drill, they'll start doing, uh, you know, basically like ipsilateral movements in the sense that like they'll go to, you know, to flex the, the arm and leg on the same side. And you're like, wait a second. And they know something's wrong. It's always really interesting when people um, first start doing these drills and they're like, 
wow, this is really challenging. Why the hell am I doing that? Um, but with someone who's a higher caliber runner, yeah, I do think that um, starting to get into some more explosive stuff uh, definitely can lend to improved performance. I'll never forget when I was in college, I went to the uh, the BU track in Boston and I watched Alan Webb run a 3000 meter indoor race. And while he was warming up on the infield, you know, me and all my friends were track geeks. We're just, you know, nerding out over watching Alan Webb warm up for this race. And he was doing a series of drills that we had never seen before that were much more complex than what we were used to. And he, man, he looked so good. It was so smooth, so coordinated. And then, you know, of course he goes and runs basically four minute mile pace for a 3000 meter race. And he just looked so great doing it. And he was talking to the pacer and it was just such a great experience. And it really uh, instilled in me this appreciation for the complexity and the difficulty of some of these drills, because I was at this point, I'd been doing drills for years and I knew that I wasn't able to do the drills that Alan Webb had just done. And so I think it goes to show that we can always be working on that coordination and the better we get at those drills, the more control we have, the smoother we're going to be and probably the less injuries we're going to have and the better we're going to run. Yeah. And I, and I also think that a lot of this is shaped from I would say largely from my background as a physical therapist, because I have a lot of athletes that when they connect with me, a lot of times they'll want to enter a coaching relationship. And I say, look, there's still, you know, this is still a physical therapy issue. Um, and I can never take that hat off. So, you know, I think that that's, that's what doesn't get restored through a lot of rehab, unless someone has a sort of a niche practice focusing on runners. And by the same token, I also think that this is one of the reasons it doesn't get discussed in this light as much as when you're doing some of the heavy, slow resistance, I think you're starting to force people to load through these tissues to develop confidence and to start reestablishing some of that coordination. So, you know, it seems like the heavy, slow resistance is really, uh, you know, just a, a critical piece to any good rehab program and training program. So long as it's, you know, it interfaces with the run training or the run schedule properly. For sure. I think that's really important. And, you know, I've heard a line that I really love. I keep coming back to uh, saying that strength training for runners is essentially coordination training under resistance. So this is a, a really interesting way of looking at it. Um, now you've mentioned injuries a couple times, and I'd love to transition a little bit more and talk about injury prevention. I think this is uh, I know this is a topic that I'm personally very passionate about just because I've had a lot of injuries over my running career. And, you know, when I was finally able to get some good, consistent training in over a couple of years, I really discovered what I was capable of as a runner. And so I'm, I'm very passionate about helping athletes prevent injuries and, uh, you know, just get stronger and, and run healthier. Um, now, in terms of preventing an injury and then uh, the exercises that you might prescribe for rehabilitating an injury, is there a major difference between these two types of exercises? Cause you know, I've talked to a lot of PTs and, and it seems like, you know, you can almost do the rehab exercises when you're healthy and just consider it prehab. But is there another dimension to this that I'm not fully understanding? I think there's a, a lot of questions there. Um, so let's take a step back. Um, and can you just sort of walk me through? Before we do that, who said that quote, strength training is coordination training under resistance? Oh, let's see. Um, <clears throat> I, I heard it from Randy Hauer, who's a strength coach up in Boulder here in Colorado. And he works with um, some pretty competitive athletes, a couple elite runners. Uh, but I, I, he might have got it from someone else. Yeah, that's I, I love the way that's put. Um, so sorry, I was sort of distracted with, with the question that you were asking because I'm like, wow, you know, I was sort of reflecting on that. So walk me through your uh, your question again. So essentially, is there any difference in the exercises that you might prescribe a runner for rehabilitation versus exercises that are for prevention? With rehab, what you're ultimately trying to do is to prevent detraining and figure out the best next steps to get someone on track. So, you know, I think what it really boils down to uh, are the loads and um, 
the speeds that you're exposing the athlete to. Um, so, you know, in terms of injury prevention, um, I don't think that we can definitively prevent any injury. I, I think that there are things that we can do to mitigate the risk of an injury. But I think uh, when it comes to exercises and drills, that you're ultimately um, you're trying to just develop a, a robust strength and conditioning program. Um, and I think that you have to look at every runner's uh, life to start with. And you have to say, what is it that they're exposing themselves to with day-to-day -day activities? And then what are their goals in terms of running? Is this someone who's running more for just health and wellness? Or is this someone who's, you know, really has uh, performance milestones, whether it's qualifying for Boston, um, you know, qualifying for, for Kona or for half Ironman world championships, if we're talking about, um, triathletes. So, yeah, I mean, I think anytime someone comes to see me, I'm saying, is this someone who's more in a post injury situation or state, or is this someone who is actively training? They've been training consistently with you know, minimal injury, you know, beyond some niggles, which most runners get. And I think once you really figure out where someone is on that return to sport, which is basically something that Claire Ardain uh, published on the British Journal of Sports Medicine in 2016, as well as her colleagues, that's a critical first step. And from there, I would say, what is it? What's the stimulus that you're trying to create? Are you trying to make sure that this athlete just has a capacity to withstand their day-to-day -day activities, or are you trying to make sure that you sort of bolster their tissue capacity so they have a little bit of a greater buffer zone where they're not going to tip the scales or sort of bump into the ceiling? Um, but yeah, it, it's something that I think it really depends on the runner too. Uh, and if we're talking about strength and, and drill work, you know, what's their experience? Um, you know, and I think that, you know, I was talking to Scott Morrison about this. We're trying to work on like an exercise parameter sheet. And, you know, it's like, which bucket are you going to put them in? Is this someone who's green or completely inexperienced with strength training? Do they have some strength training experience? Or is this someone who may be coming to running um, from, say, a competitive sporting background where they've spent a lot more time in a weight room? And I think that how you approach those individuals is going to be slightly different, though there may be some common denominators. Um, and what I mean by common denominators, you know, I, I, I love the way that Dan John put this, and I hope I sound like a, a broken record with a lot of this stuff. But, you know, most every human being has to push, pull, hinge, squat, carry. So, you know, the, these movements should make their way into um, any sound training program just to make sure that you have the capacity to get through life. I mean, I have two little kids right now. I feel like I'm doing isometric bicep curls all day long and I'm just squatting down, picking them up, you know, <laughs> constantly handling them. Um, so, and then, you know, I, I think from run centric drills, you know, you want to give someone, you know, say a march or a step up, you want to give them something to, um, load the calf muscle complex. You want to give them something to load the quad, something to load the, the lateral hip and to make sure they had, have good lumbo-pelvic hip control and really head-to-toe control. Um, so, But yeah, it's tough to really say unless you have a runner standing in front of you and you really have a, a lens into where they're coming from, what they're currently doing, and what their ambitions are. Yeah, I think the audience of, of the Strength Running Podcast here is mainly adult runners who are looking to uh, improve and get better and certainly do have some sort of performance milestone in mind, whether that's simply run their first marathon, qualify for Boston, run the, their first ultra marathon, whatever the goal might be, they're still performance minded. Um, but I'd love to talk a little bit more about those lifestyle issues that you mentioned very briefly. And I can't help but think that, you know, your average desk job worker who has a more sedentary lifestyle, I can't help but think that has a big impact on their mobility and their ability to move well. Have you found this in your work? And, and what do you do about that? Well, I think it turns into a scheduling problem for a lot of these folks. Um, you know, I, I think we have to be careful about, you know, planting that seed in someone's mind to say like, hey, look, you're desk bound, you know, you're basically going to 
developed this pattern that people would associate with like a, you know, a lower cross syndrome from all of the sitting. I think if someone's getting up and moving around and taking frequent breaks and they're not just glued to a screen, like a trader, for example, I worked with a lot of traders when I was in New York city, they're not going to develop these patterns of tightness and inflexibilities to the extent that I think uh, the press would lead you on to believe. With that said, what I see with a lot of these folks is they're pressed for time, like most humans. So when they go from sitting all day, they basically, you know, whenever they check out from work, they go right into a run. They lace up their shoes and just take off. And I think the way that that can be approached or how I try to get a lot of the athletes I'm working with approach that is to say, hey, look, we need to get, you're so wound, you're probably wound up from your day. We need to start extending your warm up. So I want you to just go out for a 10 to 15 minute walk. I want you to layer in some marching drills and then we'll start to slowly bleed into your run. And then we'll start, gradually start to pick up the pace, almost like a bell shaped curve. So I think that's how you address those situations and make sure that they're factoring in that warm up time as part of their total training time. I think a lot of times folks don't even include that. And with all the runners I, that I coach, I say, look, if I ever see you skip that warm up, I'm out because I want them to just really become creatures of habit and ritualize that. And I, I do tend to get a lot of pushback initially, but you know, folks just have to understand they're going from sitting all day and then they're trying to exercise their muscles in a lengthened position. And, you know, do I think that's the devil? No, but I think that th there's better habits that can be uh, adopted by these runners. Um, especially, you know, most of these folks are master's level runners too. And folks in invariably tell me, Hey, Chris, I, you know, after two to three months of doing this, they're like, I love these fitness walks. And when I say fitness walk, walking briskly with arms pumping, it say 3.2 to 3.5 miles per hour. So that's sort of how I, I get folks, um, approaching that situation. But there is a study, I think, and I, I, I need to go back and really make sure that I reread this, but where they essentially took, uh, you know, a group of rats and they immobilized them for basically prevented them from moving for 23 hours and would let them run around for one hour and they seemed to be fine. So, you know, I, I think that we have to be careful of uh, imposing additional stress and uh, nocebos on these athletes because they have enough on their plate to, to begin with. Right. I, I've, I've kind of gone the same route with really prioritizing a dynamic warm up before my running and, and the running of the athletes that I work with. And, you know, it, it's funny, it's almost the same dynamic. You know, I get a little bit of pushback initially. A lot of runners are saying, but I get up at five in the morning or five 30 in the morning. I don't have time for a 10 minute warm up before I even start running. But, uh, it invariably happens where two, three months down the road, they come to me and they say, I have never felt better. I feel great at the beginning of most of my runs, and this just completely transforms how I feel on a day-to-day -day basis. And so I, I think it's really important um, to do that warm-up. Um, <clears throat> now, I'd love to transition and talk a little bit more about um, how you, or if it's even possible, to predict injuries. And I know that the functional movement screen got a lot of press maybe about 10 years ago. It was kind of this hot new thing. And, and it's almost, um, we've gone, gone and done almost a complete 180 on the FMS. And now we're saying, well, it doesn't really have any predictive power over injuries and, and you know, what your risk might be. Is there any way that injury assessments can actually work, whether that's the FMS or something else? First off, I, I think that it's important that people try to take a stab at this and you know, and then you subject it to scientific scrutiny and, and really figure out if there's uh, any validity to to that is a screening tool. And, you know, what we've learned is that, it, yeah, it doesn't predict injuries to the extent that, you know, the, the developers had probably hoped. Um, so I think when the second you start attaching numbers and a score to something, things get messy really quick. So, you know, I, I put out... Um, a list of physical performance tests, uh, which think of these as uh, functional assessments specific to runners. 
Um, and what you're trying to do is to really establish someone's load capacity and to their ability to withstand the performance demands of running. So I don't use that as a, an attempt to try and predict. I look at I look at that as um, are people sensitive to certain movements or loading certain tissues or regions, um, and I'm just saying, hey, is this an area for improvement or is this do they do they meet the criteria that I'm looking for? So you know, and just to walk you through those, uh, and we can talk about them. Uh, in a little bit greater detail, if you'd like, I look at simple single leg balance and I'm not getting up in arms. If someone's, you know, has a little bit of a, a bobble. I mean, if they're flailing their arms or they're holding their breath and they're unwilling to load that side, or they have pain when they unload that side, you know, I'm trying to say, Hey, is, is there a potential bone stress injury here? You know, why are we seeing what we're seeing? You know, you could look at something like a lateral step down, which just yields a wealth of information. I mean, that's one of maybe two or three tests outside of running that I would use to get a lens into a runner's ability to withstand the performance demands. Now, that doesn't involve any stretch shortening cycle, but you're looking at a whole slew of things. Um, I'll look at a side plank plus or minus hip abduction to really load the lateral hip. Um, we know that the lateral hip musculature, musculature plays an important role with running. Um, I'll look at a bridge and straight leg raise. I will look at um, calf raises just because a calf is a powerhouse of distance running, especially the soleus. Um, and there, there are also more advanced versions of this. You know, if you look at a bridge and straight leg raise in a you know really competitive you know runner, say a middle distance runner, you want to you want to make that more challenging because the loads are going to be greater because they're running at faster speeds. Um, and then you can look at pogo jumps where you start to get into more energy storage and release and start to address that stretch shortening cycle. So I always look at that battery of tests just to say, hey, where, what are the things that we can improve or tighten up? Because I'm always just systematically trying to take runners through these assessments and say, where's the low hanging fruit? What can we address? Or are they getting pushback? And maybe do we need to rethink what they're going to be doing from a training standpoint that day? Um, so yeah, I, I think we have to be very careful of trying to predict injury. What we need to really identify with runners is, are there places where there's been incomplete rehab? Because as the saying goes, you're only as good as your last injury and in the extent you rehabbed it. So, and I just find that everyone, and I've been through countless injuries and surgeries and rehab, and the thing that I look back on, and I, and I pat myself on the back, one of the few things I pat myself on the back with, I, I did, I rehabbed to the best of my ability, and I continue to incorporate certain drills to load certain tissues um, to try and reduce the likelihood of sustaining something moving forward. There's so much great stuff in there, Chris. Uh, I wish I had three hours to chat with you today, but um, I'd love to talk a little bit more about, you know, what we can do while we're injured. And so, you know, you talking about your rehabbing, your, the injuries that you've had in your career and how you rehabbed, it sounds fairly aggressively. You were doing a lot of drills, a lot of strength work. Um, I think a lot of runners get hurt and they think, oh, well, I have to take some time off from training. And then they go sit on their butt for a week or two. And, you know, it sounds like that is clearly not the best option for getting healthy from an injury. Can you very briefly talk about, you know, what we're trying to do to the injured tissue, the surrounding tissue during rehab so that we can get running again and, and specifically why sitting around and resting isn't really treating the injury itself. Yeah. And I think we, we have to start by first saying, you know, what's the, what's the injury at hand here? Um, you know, for example, if you have someone that's dealing with a high risk bone stress injury site, let's say you have um, someone who's dealing with an anterior tibial cortex injury, which has, and when we talk about high risk bone stress injury sites, these are sites that are tough to unload that also have poor blood supply. So, you know, if, if someone's dealing with say a proximal femur bone stress injury or a navicular bone stress injury, base of the fifth metatarsal, anterior tibial cortex, and there are others, but these are things where, yeah, you have to unload them, um, and go non weight bearing. 
So if you have someone who's dealing with a tendon-related disorder, that's a little bit of a different beast because the, the implications or the sequela of, you know, perhaps sensitizing that region or tissue are much less grave. So, you know, I, the tricky thing with runners is, and there's a study that was just published on this, when runners get sidelined by injury, they don't tend to look at this as an opportunity to maybe plug in or learn about some other important aspects that may relate to their training. They tend to just sort of, you know, withdraw and they wait until their symptoms uh, abate and then they try to plug back in. So I always think that, you know, this is an opportunity where you can get someone to perhaps even lift a little bit heavier, say if they're, they're already doing some work. You know, this is an opportunity where perhaps you can get them to lift a little bit heavier so long as it's not worsening or prolonging their recovery. So, you know, obviously with running, there's an, uh, you know, an energy storage and release that uh, the athlete has to tolerate. So say if they're dealing with a reactive Achilles tendinopathy, well, by all means, here's a chance for you to, you know, perhaps do some cycling. If you're tolerant of walking, let's get you out on some walks and let's have you lifting uh, in a manner that's going to challenge you without tipping the scales and in further sensitizing the issue. And I also think this is a good chance, you know, I think any endurance athlete puts a lot of things on the back burner. And this is an opportunity to, hey, maybe pick up a book, maybe take this time to read about some of the, the coaches over the years. I mean, I'm sitting here looking at my bookshelf. Maybe I pick up a, a book from Percy Sarity and, and just read it. And I think it helps you maybe better conceptualize how you approach your training, or it may give you some insight as to why perhaps you got injured in the first place. Um, so I, I think there's a number of things that, that can be done, and it's sort of figuring out who that individual is, what they're up to in life. And, you know, for example, I, I mean, with my two kids, maybe if I'm not able to run, I, I take them over to the pool and play with them in the pool, you know? So... I think that a lot of these things can be blessing, blessings in disguise if you take the time to step back and have some perspective. Um, and this is such a critical theme of all of the rehab that, um, that I do, and, and I know I'm not alone. I think other clinicians do this well, is that we have a, a responsibility as health-facing professionals to broaden the identity of an endurance athlete because so often this is their identity. And when that basically gets put on hold or that's interrupted, they go through an identity crisis. And that this is where they can start to take a turn for the worse in terms of their health. And I always remind runners, this is, you know, because you've taken care of yourself over time, this is your return on investment. Let's make sensible decisions. Let's take the wellness factors off the table of like sleep, nutrition, you know, just making sure that you're taking this time for your body to sort of harness its resources to overcome the injury, assuming it's a true tissue injury and someone's not just dealing with pain from sensitization. Um, and then in time, you'll be able to plug back in and you'll, you know, I always joke with runners who have been sidelined and say, look, sometimes, it, you know, the path to a goal is a brief retirement. And uh, we saw this with, uh, you know, um, Tim O'Donnell and Ann Hogg or Hogue, I'm probably bastardizing uh, the pronunciation of her name. Um, so she won Kona this year and Tim O'Donnell had an incredible performance coming behind for Dino and, um, and they weren't running for an extended period of time going into this. So I think a lot of the times these things can be blessings in disguise, uh, but you have to really understand the, t the nature of the injury. Um, and, and I just see too many people treating bone stress injuries in a lackadaisical manner and it goes on to really have uh, some negative, negative consequences. Right. You can't really mess around with bone injuries. You really need to uh, treat those appropriately. And I, I love the perspective that you have over injuries and how it's a learning opportunity. It's a time to reflect. It's a time to look back on your training and figure out, hey, what was I doing that maybe contributed to this injury and how can I change things moving forward? It's definitely a more mature way to think about being injured. And you know, when I look back on my running career, you know, it took a long time to learn that lesson. And it took a lot of injuries for me to really learn that lesson of, hey, let's learn 
from this. Let's reflect on it. And then moving forward, let's actually make some changes to how I'm training so that we can prevent it from happening again. And, and I think, uh, you know, I, I think that's one of the biggest challenges that I've encountered as a coach is, is then modifying training post-injury to hopefully prevent that injury from recurring. So, you know, for example, if a runner has IT band syndrome, you know, we're going to work on strengthening the glutes and the hips and avoid running on the camber or slope of the road. I think that's some real low hanging fruit. Um, and, you know, I'm wondering, Chris, are there certain training modifications that are specific to certain injuries that you recommend? So, I mean, maybe we can just pick an injury like plantar fasciitis or uh, runner's knee and, and just say, you know, what are some things that runners can do coming back from the injury that might lessen their risk of getting it once again? Well, I, I'll speak to a situation that, uh, that set in with me recently. I've been doing some training runs with, um, with coaching clients and, you know, who, who tend to run significantly slower than I do. And essentially like I go out and I'm, it, it looks like I'm almost bounding, even though I try to think, okay, let's adopt a slightly higher step rate. And I sensitize a tibial tubercle, which is, um, how patellar tendinopathy tends to present, um, with a running specific population. So now this is something that being in this field, I also know that I don't need to stop training. But what I do need to consider is how can I redistribute those forces so they're not really, you know, being concentrated at the level of the knee. So you could do stuff where, hey, maybe you start to bias your training towards some more uphill running. Maybe you could just simply adopt a higher cadence. So that way you don't have to actually stop training. So, um, but I always want to make sure that if someone starts to plug in back to regular training, they can directly load through the tissue that they're complaining of. Um, because if they can't do that, they're going to develop, develop compensatory strategies, which oftentimes they start loading tissues that haven't developed the capacity to withstand those forces. And this is where I think, you know, you can have things set in pretty quick, depending on the runner and, and the nature of their training. Does that answer your question? I feel like I started to, but. Yeah. So, I mean, can we use a specific injury like plantar fasciitis and, and what are, what are some real specifics that runners can do to prevent it from happening again? Well, I would say that if someone is dealing with plantar fasciitis or plantar fasciopathy, um, that you would first off, it's a game of addition by subtraction don't start stretching the, the hell out of it. Um, I would also say that where I see a lot of people getting into trouble with a plantar fasciopathy is they're doing too much uh, training on the gas or you know uh, up-tempo runs, or they're doing too much hill work, and that starts to sensitize it. So I think the main thing is with a situation like that is you eliminate those elements or factors that are going to sensitize it. And then you could also look to adopt a slightly higher cadence because that's been shown to reduce plantar pressures. And I also think that you want to figure out what's the entry point into loading that person. So, you know, if someone has a plantar fasciopathy, you know, you could look at towards something like the, the study by Michael Rathliff, which involved high load strength training. But sometimes it's just figuring out the entry point which is loading the tissue with the issue so it's not losing capacity. While you try to do what you can to keep that athlete training, and sometimes you may need to just remove running from the equation for a short period of time. I know when I had my Achilles issue, I, I tripped off, a, I had a reactive Achilles tendinopathy. I didn't do any running for two to three weeks. And, you know, in, by the fifth week, I was back doing intervals without any issue. So it's just removing those offending forces but making sure that you don't lose too much capacity in the process. Um, but you know, what I see with a lot of folks that have a plantar fasciopathy is, you know, back to sort of the, the person who's sitting at a desk, they go from sitting and they go right into their run. They don't afford a walking warm up. Maybe they do a bunch of stretching um, and they take a, a, an approach of avoidance. 
um, and they're not really mindful of the, the training that they're doing. And it just gets to a point where they sensitize it so much so that they have to end up almost, uh, you know, just taking time off of running. Um, but I think that a lot of times you can figure out ways to keep people training unless it's it's really in a reactive state. Yeah, I like your your point that as, as much as we can load the tissue without there being any pain or any problems with that, then we should definitely keep doing that because that's just going to keep uh, the, the tissues more capable once you do start running. Um, now, if a runner is incapable of running because of an injury, what are some ways that they can continue loading the tissue? Is it still drills, strength training, uh, aerobic cross training, like cycling, hiking, even uh, those kinds of things? I would say that if someone is unable to run, the thing that I absolutely want them doing so long as, you know, we establish, you know, what's, what they're tolerant of, what's acceptable to them is walking. And what I see with a lot of folks is they get sidelined from running and they're thrown into an aquatic program, which again, has its place um, or cycling, but there's no axial load or really weight bearing element to the extent that walking would entail. So I would want to make sure that they're at least tolerant of walking on level ground to gentle rollers. You know, if we stick with the plantar fasciopathy theme, um, this is not something where I'd say like, hey, let's let's put you out on a hike, at least in a place like Seattle or, or Colorado, um, because that's going to start to shift the loads. And maybe they get to a point, maybe they're even acceptable of that. But I think really making sure that they're at least doing some fitness walking uh, in the interim, and then we'll start plugging them back into a walk run um, is their symptoms start to abate. But I, I think with a lot of these injuries, you know, once you rule out anything sinister, you have to sit down and have a heart to heart chat and really make sure you know what, what someone's thinking in terms of their relationship with pain. And this is one of the first things I do with, uh, with an athlete. I, I say, look, I, I need to get a lens into where you're coming from, your running experience and what's acceptable to you, because you know, we have the pain monitoring model, model thanks to um, uh, Kay Crossley um, and Corinne Silbernagel. But I think sometimes you have to be careful of attaching numbers to this. It works for certain people, but you want to say what's acceptable to you and to make sure that your pain is not escalating and it's returning to baseline within 24 to 36 hours. Because if it's not, you're probably tipping the scales and you're only prolonging one's recovery. Yeah, that's a good point. And now I'm curious, what are some things that that do prolong that recovery and actually make things worse? You know, I have a, a very simple rule for runners that I work with and is that, you know, if you're experiencing any kind of sharp pain, let's not run through that. Let's not run through any pain that doesn't get uh, get better and resolve itself, you know, within a couple minutes of you running. And let's certainly not run when you have to change your form to compensate for some kind of discomfort. Because then we're essentially, you know, giving ourselves a self-imposed limp. And that's just going to lead to all sorts of compens compensations and, and that kind of thing, which can, which can lead to additional injuries. But how else might we be making our recovery take longer than it should? I think when people continue to sensitize, you know, certain tissues that are at play. Um, so, you know, people who continue to try to run through, um, through pain that is escalating, for example. Um, so, and I think that we have to just take a step back and really communicate to runners you know, how to approach sort of staging and typing this. And, you know, this is something that I learned from Bruce Wilk, and I think he got the framework pretty close to right. I think that there are some things that, that needed to be refined, um, but making sure that people can sort of, I try to really, you know, foster autonomy with runners and get them making sensible decisions. So, you know, if you take a step back and, you know, his grading scale, um, which I'll, I'll send you a copy of this, I, it's called the Wilk classification system. Um, which is really, I, I modified it. So I call it modified will classification system. But, you know, stage one, unfamiliar, disconcerting pain. You're out on a run. You're not like, oh, we finally have a sunny day in Seattle. You're like, what is going on with my calf or insert body part here? Um, and uh, the red flag is 
adopting altered mechanics. And the only time I'm cool with someone doing that is if they're racing and they see a finish line off in the distance. Um, stage two is pain at rest following running. Stage two red flag is pain that prevents rest. Um, that's something that I really want to be vigilant with monitoring. Um, if we even go back to stage one, you know, unfamiliar, disconcerting pain. Well, the caveat there is, does it warm up? Because if it warms up, you're likely dealing with a tendon related disorder. Then it's more important on how you're monitoring those symptoms on the back end, you know, the rest of the day after they finish the run, as well as how, it, you know, um, how it proceeds during the following morning. Is it returning to baseline or is it, or is it still sensitized? Bone stress injuries don't warm up. All right, they tend to get worse with impact until that impact is removed. But if someone continues to train in the context of a bone stress injury, then they may start getting symptoms uh, at rest. Stage three is pain with activities of daily living. Stage three red flag is pain that um, causes you to avoid activities of daily living. Say if you have the choice between, you know, taking the stairs or an escalator, you're at the airport or the mall, and there's no way that you would take the stairs because it would sensitize, you know, a certain region of the, the lower extremity. Stage four is pain that's managed with medications. Um, being in stage four, when I say medications, injectables, NSAIDs, pain relievers, um, corticosteroids, PRP, um, being in that stage is part of a denial process to me. And then stage five is that person, I can think of someone recently who was doing um, hill sprints and had a history of a plantar fasciopathy and ruptured their plantar fascia. And when they came to see me, they were like holding onto the walls. It looked like, you know, they were just, they shouldn't have even gotten, gotten out of bed. Um, so I, I think a lot of this is just education and communication. And, you know, so often if we can just, desensitize things over a two to four week period, for example, um, excluding bone stress injuries, that a lot of times people can slowly plug back into their training almost without skipping a beat. But I think a lot of the times folks are in denial, runners, their identity revolves around running, and they're just so eager to just keep trying and keep trying to run. And, you know, only to get the same result. And that's when they start sensitizing these, these tissues and really prolong the recovery. I think I was in denial for a five-year period of my running career when I was constantly getting hurt and, and I was always dealing with injury problems. Um, now, I want to talk briefly about this topic of sensitizing the tissue. You know, I've talked to a lot of runners who will say something like, you know, X body part started to hurt when I was out for a run. Uh, a week ago. And now it doesn't hurt when I run, but if I bend my leg in this funny way, stand on my toes and pat my head, like then it starts to hurt. And my response is always, well, can you just not do that weird movement that you would never normally do in everyday life? And then you wouldn't be causing this extra pain because it sounds like it doesn't hurt when you're running. And if we can just avoid pain for a good chunk of time, you're probably likely to recover a lot faster. Yeah, for sure. And I think that it's so tricky because it doesn't seem it's like if you have a scab, you pick it. If your shoulder is bothering you, why do you keep testing it going into abduction? You know, so this is exactly what I'm talking about in terms of sensitizing certain things. So as much as I want people to tease their limits and poke into the pain, uh, as someone like Greg Lehman would say, um, I also think that, you know, if you continue to do that, you're going to end up, you know, opening that scab and that's, what's going to prolong your recovery. Um, but you know, I also think it's, it's interesting. And I, I would remind someone to say like, Hey, look, you're telling me that you don't get any pushback with running, but you have pushback when you do X, Y, or Z. Well, this is awesome. And they're looking at you like, what do you mean? It's awesome. And you're like, well, no, you're able to go out and tolerate running, which involves, you know, cumulative loads, a lot of repetitious loading, peak loads and energy storage and release. Oh, you're good. You know, stop sensitizing this, you know, and, and just see how they do. But yeah, I mean, I think that's a very favorable situation. And if the, the runner isn't reminded of that reality, uh, you know, I, I think that sometimes that simple reassurance goes a long way. 
Yeah, runners are always surprised when I say that I'm actually quite encouraged by the fact that they're not having pain while they're running. And, you know, they're like, but it hurts when I do this weird movement. And I say, well, we just simply don't have to do that movement. You're doing the sport that you like and it's not causing you any pain. So that's a great thing. Yeah. And if there is anything sinister or seriously wrong going on, running is going to expose you, especially if you're in a place like, again, Colorado or Seattle, just because you're going to be going up and down hills uh, or mountains. Yeah, we have we have some big ones here. <laughs> Chris, uh, this has been uh, really helpful for me. I've, I've always been really excited to help runners prevent injuries and and understand the injury process a little bit more robustly, partly because I was always so injury prone myself. So just thank you so much for giving us so many useful ideas here to help keep us healthy and keep running strong. Uh, of course, Jason, and uh, keep up the great work yourself. I uh, I peruse your website now and then, and uh, you know it's an honor when someone of your caliber reaches out to to just sort of get a lens into my thoughts and some of the the things that I tend to focus or prioritize in working with runners across the injury to performance spectrum. Thanks, Chris. I really appreciate that, and definitely let me know if you're ever in Denver. We'll run a couple miles. Uh, of course, I have uh, I have a bunch of friends out there. Uh, one dear friend. Um, who uh, who lives in Highlands Ranch? His son, I think, is a, the top mobile skier in the country right now as a junior. So, um, all right, yeah, I'll I'll get out there. He likes to hammer me on the bike uh, the first couple days, and needless to say, um, you know, you have to go through a little bit of an adjustment. So, <laughs> you you sure do. Yeah, the altitude uh, can can really hit you if you're not ready for it. Well, hey, thanks again. I look forward to uh, to listening to the podcast and uh, yeah, keep up the great work. And there it is. I hope you enjoyed listening to my conversation with Chris as much as I did having it. Don't forget to follow him on Instagram at ZarenPT for a wealth of information about drills and exercises to help you get stronger and stay healthy. And if you're someone who digs injury prevention advice, one of my favorite projects that I've done over the last couple of years was crowdsourcing nine elite runners' favorite injury prevention advice. You're going to hear from Amelia Boone, Dathan Ritzenhain, Ian Sharman, Devin Yanko, Max King, David Roche, and a bunch of others on the strategies that they use to stay healthy. I put it together for you in a downloadable book that you can get absolutely for free at strengthrunning.com slash elites. Let me know if you have any feedback on this episode. So hit me up on Twitter or Instagram. I'm at Jason Fitz one, and I'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening, guys. Until next time.